As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Ian Steely of JP Morgan Asset Management alongside us today. Ian, great to have you with us in the building. I wanted to start here because I think this is really important. In the United States, I ask about the debt ceiling and people shake their heads and they're like, not this again. Is anyone asking about that? When you go around and see clients in London and the UK across Europe, are they asking about it? To be completely honest, no, not, not really. Maybe, not maybe there's the, the, you know, the odd person is starting to, to think about it, but I, I get the sense there's a case of we've been here, we've seen the movie. There will be a bit of toing and froing, but the reality is, at the end of the day, there will be some resolve around it. Do you think they should care? Um, not yet. I think ultimately you need to get, you need to wait until we get into the stage where actually there is going to be a material impact. That's going to be later over the course of this year. I always look at the bill market to see if there's any spikes in certain certain maturities. We're not seeing yet that yet, so the market's not really particularly focusing on it. And I, I feel that we've had. Over the last few years, this isn't the first time we've had these, these conversations. There's a, lot about, there's a lot of other things going on in the world before we get to probably worrying about the debt ceiling. Well, the ultimate test of that is if the debt ceiling hits the fan, do we buy the 10-year Treasury? The answer in years gone by is yes. Do you see that answer changing? Probably even more so now, just because actually you've got some yield on the 10-year Treasury. We were happy to buy the 10-year Treasury back sure. in 2011 when there wasn't um, much yield on, on the 10-year. And th- this time there is. So I, I definitely think that will be the case. And the flight to quality will will favour those, those bonds. You know where there hasn't been any yield and hasn't been for several decades is Japan. I know that's yep. a massive focus for a lot of people here in London, for you as well, looking at fixed income. There was a meeting back in December. We had the meeting's minutes and it suggested that the government official there actually requested a recess, suspended the meeting. What do you think is going on at the BOJ? And do you think the government is happy with it? I think the reality is, when you look at where inflation is in Japan, it's not what we've seen in the US, it's not what we've seen in Europe, but it's, it's going up. And at the moment, their policy looks at odds with, with what's happening. The reality, though, is they don't want to cause untoward volatility in the market. I'm not, I, I don't want to liken what's happening in Japan to maybe what happened in the UK a few months ago, sure. but they don't want to see that level of, of volatility. So I think what we've learned from the Bank of Japan over the last couple of months or so is that I think we're going to get there, but they're going to do it on their own terms. They obviously widened the band when the market wasn't expecting it. The market was hoping for something last week. They didn't. And they're obviously doing these facilities at the moment to try to keep financial stability. We're going to get there. It's inevitable, I I think. Um, But they also want to do it on their own terms. Two words I want to talk about, normal and market. Those two words. I caught it with Jeremy Stretch in the last couple of hours of CIBC. And he said, Japan's the next one to normalise. And I said, what's normal? I've got no idea what's normal in Japan when they've been doing this now for decades. The other word I want to talk about with you as well is the word market. Is there a market? 
a sufficient market with private demand, both domestically and internationally, for Japanese debt for when this BOJ backs away? Does it exist? Is there any sign of the one actually being there right now? Um, that's going to be a challenge because obviously the Bank of Japan own a huge, huge piece of the market, particularly in the, uh, in the shorter dated 10 years and in where they've obviously been looking to control control yields. So I think that's an open, open debate. Obviously, we're going to see the market repriced to where, to where it should, should do. But the reality is there is a huge amount of securities owned by, by the bank, where much should, more than any other should it reprice to if we don't know if there's a market there So actually, what you, can, what you can do is if you track the 10-year JGB yield and put it on top of the 10-year Treasury yield and you see Treasury yields move higher over the course of last year, the, the 10-year JGB suddenly hit, hit the upper bound. If you st- and that, before then, there was a pretty good relationship. So if you reach, continue to track that, you're talking somewhere 70 to 75 basis points, given where the 10-year Treasury is. That probably seems as a, as a good starting point. As I said, inflation in Japan isn't what it was in the US and Europe, but it's going up. We've got you know, wage negotiations coming up in April. Um, I think they're going to have to let that go. So don't fight the Fed used to be the phrase. I know you've been reflecting on that. Should I fight the BOJ? I think the interesting thing is, as I said, they want to do it on their own terms. So they're, at the moment, they're trying to push some of the shorts out of, out of the market. If you've got a long-term view, I think you can hold that, and actually yields will be higher over the, the medium, medium term. What kind of numbers are you thinking about? On the yields? I think 75 basis points on, on the 10-year. I think that, can they I think go, go beyond there. that kind of number, though, in Japan? I'm looking at the things right now that are taking place across fixed income and with central banks. You're talking about the BOJ backing away from yield curve control. The ECB is doing QT. They've got officials running out all over the place saying 50 basis points, 50 basis points. I think the bank agrees push back a little bit. In that world, is that bullish or bearish for fixed income at a time where I've got pretty much everyone in fixed income saying buy bonds? All these things taking place, Japan, the ECB, QT, all over the place. Is that bearish or bullish fixed income? It depends what part of the fixed income market you're talking about. Because the US, where people are looking to buy bonds, have seen the bigger repricing. We've got more evidence over the last week or so that we are having a slowdown, you know, retail sales. We're going to have the Fed who want to slow down from their pace. You know, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, they're behind the Fed. We've only just got to neutral in Europe. And as you said, what is neutral in Japan? Maybe we'll find out. Got no idea. Uh, so... They need to do a little bit more. And I actually think Europe is particularly interesting at the moment because we were in a world where they were hiking rates to deal with inflation. Now, inflation's coming or likely to come off because of what's happening in energy prices. That should be good for the economy. You know, growth is supposed to, we're supposed to be in recession in Europe at the moment, and we're not. So are the ECB going to maybe have to go slower but further um, as they try to battle this? So I definitely think there's a dynamic between wanting to own US fixed income and then being a little bit more cautious on some of the other markets around the world. I wanted to squeeze this in because I asked this question earlier. I'm going to ask it all week. Does the ECB hike more than the Fed in 2023? Yes. Seems to be the takeaway at the moment. Instantly, this was fantastic. It's good to see you from JP Morgan Asset Management. Right now, Alifia Dorwala joins us with Rock Creek Group. They are an exceptionally thoughtful group with real hydrocarbon focus and also with an EM bent. We're thrilled uh, she could join us uh, this morning. Alifia, what is cash right now? Is cash an asset? You know, last year, cash was definitely an asset. We were overweight cash and it helped our portfolios. This year, we are starting to put a little bit of money to work incrementally within fixed income more than anything else. Um, A little bit too early to be really chasing fixed income. But we think that at some point, we're going to want to start extending duration. So fixed income is a big focus 
uh, today. What do you do with energy as the only survivor of an ugly 2022? You people have got terrific natural gas history. How do you how do you frame that or how do you bet on that out three years? Yeah. And, you know, Lisa, you mentioned two of our main themes. Will the energy shock from the war in Europe continue to be contained or do we see part two this year? You know, we saw winter warmth. We've seen European subsidies. We've seen the U.S. tapping into the strategic patrol reserve um, support containment. And then we see China, on the other hand, you know, demand for oil is going to increase as China reopens. And so we're kind of looking at all of these factors and saying, is the second half of the year going to be a little bit like we were seeing some of the tensions in the last year? So let's put those two ideas together. You were saying it's not time to lean into duration, but you're waiting to, and the potential for the energy crisis to rear its head. What are you waiting for? We've seen a rally already. So yields are already almost a percentage point off the recent highs for the 10-year. What are you waiting for to say it is time? Yeah, and it's a continuous conversation as markets are moving, but we've seen a disconnect, right, between market expectations and the Fed's hawkish announcements. The 10-year seems to be stuck a little bit around 3.5% because markets think that the Fed's going to have to pivot and reduce rates. We think that the 10-year could retrace up to around 4% at some point early this year, and then that's going to signal a good opportunity to slowly start buying duration. Again, we're looking for good entry points to start extending duration in our fixed income portfolios, but we don't want to chase anything because we do think that we're still a long way off from the Fed really signaling any sort of even pause. What's interesting to me is the idea of a 4% 10-year yield and the implication for equities that previously sold off when yields went up. But if we have an environment where where it's a positive look at the economy, at what could potentially happen with growth, is that also going to be positive for equities in the short run? You know, I think equities are going to be um, maybe potentially a tale of two halves this year. You know, we think kind of middling for the next six months, but I think you're going to have to pick your spots. You have to remember the S&P is still trading around 18 times, whereas Europe's trading around 12 and a half and EM in certain countries even lower. So it could be a valuation right. story the first half of the year. Alifia, with you and Afsani, let's just talk about the Vogue again. I believe it was a Vogue 12 months ago, 24 months ago. 36 months ago, you get the theme, EM and international are back. Is this time different? You know, I, it feels like a little bit of a consensus trade because you're starting to hear people really talk about it more. And again, you can't generalize yet. I mean, China to Brazil to India, these are completely different factors, completely different time horizons you have to have. But as an institutional investor, you have to be in emerging markets. And to some extent, you have to get China right, because that is the still the biggest determinant in an EM portfolio. Alifia, thank you so much. Alifia Dorwala with Rock Creek Group there on the allocation mystery. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. What we're going to do right now is speak to someone who invented it. I really can't say this enough. I'm going to go back to the shock and awe of point-and-figure charts of 1880 and through the early part of last century. And then in the 1940s, there was dropped upon us someone who said, you can plot a stock and you can draw lines of support and resistance. His name was John Maggie. One of his great disciples was Ralph Ancompora. To say he's a chartered market technician, co-founder, barely describes his contribution to looking back at what price tells us about forward. Ralph, honored to have you with us today. I want you to discuss the modern idiocy over catharsis. We need catharsis to make a bottom in the equity market. Have you observed catharsis that drags us out of this bear market. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you for that kind introduction. I have to have I have to stress October 13th, Tom. The Dow had an intraday price swing of 1502 points. No one's talking about it. In technical parlance, that's called a key reversal day when the low of the day and the high of the day precede the previous day's high low. And that, to me, was a major turning point. And since that October low to the December 13th high, the Dow is up about 20 21%. The S&P is up about 18%. So there's been a nice recovery. And since then, the market's been consolidating. I think we're making a bottom long-term in this bull market. Ralph, the study of technical analysis with great respect for Dow theory and the rest Mm -hmm. of it was done at a time of non-derivative instruments. We now live in a world of ETFs, of massive indexation and all. Did the formulas of support and resistance that you helped invent Did they work in this time where the New York Stock Exchange really isn't the New York Stock Exchange we knew? Yes. Uh, I I appreciate that question, Tom. But remember what technical analysis is all about. It is following the laws of supply and demand, buyers versus sellers. And that has never changed. The emotion of investors has never changed. Fear and greed is all manifest in what we follow. So if you believe in price, which I do, that's I don't own an indicator. I own price and I follow the trend of price. Buyers push them up. Sellers push them down. It's that simple. Ralph, on the spectrum of risk versus fear of a risk appetite versus taking all your chips off the table, where are we? Um, I, for me, I, I've taken uh, I've become a little I've become very aggressive coming at it at October 13th low. And I think since then, if you look at foreign markets like Europe and you look at emerging markets, they have been leading the U.S. market. So um, I think it's broadening out. Uh, So I'd say put chips on the table, play the game. 
What makes you feel like this has staying power, like this is the early stages of something more sustained versus a head fake ahead of something that a lot of people say is a necessary byproduct of monetary policy? Good question. Um, remember I was talking about October 13th? Low. And it rallied in two months to, to December 13th high. And that <clears throat> since de December 13th, we've had a pullback. The Dow has dropped about uh, six percent mm -hmm. or so. I think the S and P had an eight percent decline, and those levels right there, we are looking at uh, that would be uh, thirty two thousand five eighty one on the Dow and three thousand seven sixty four on the S and P. Those are very short term support levels. That's where the buying should be in. I I keep my eye closely on that on a short term right. basis, and I think we're holding up well. Ralph, I, I want to get back to the arch issue of the day, which is the failure of the American retirement system because people are in and out and in and out of the market. We're at one of those moments right now where millions of people are literally saying, how do I summon the courage to get back into the market? And I'm going to go to the to the crew that you and I are weaned on in Larchmont, New York, Mike Burke, Chartcraft, Mr. Cohen's work, and of course, Earl Blumenthal. They knew <laughs> when to have the courage to get into the the market. How do you yeah. get into the market like you did in 1975? Uh, when you say get into the market, you mean participating in trading? I'm in and cash investing? and I need to go long. Oh, How do I okay. get back into the market if I'm scared stiff? Well, again, I, I again being a technician, I think you got to look at levels. And I think in the days ahead, literally, <clears throat> excuse me, in the in the very short term, the next couple of weeks, just watch because we're in the early seasons right now. And we still got a lot of dialogue about whether it's a recession or not a recession. Um, and you got the war in Ukraine. If we can hold above that October low, which I think we will, uh, that to me would be the final test. So in the next couple of weeks, volatility, we hold above those lows. Right. I think uh, looking out towards the second half of this year, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape. Ralph, never enough time. Ralph Encompora there on technical analysis. Just honored to have him on with us. to say here in London I can catch up with Jeremy Stretch, the head of G10 FX strategy at CIBC. Jeremy, great to catch up with you, buddy. Good to see you. Front page of the FT this morning for all to see. Europe can avoid recession. The Eurozone can avoid recession. Can the Eurozone avoid recession? Well, certainly the, the mood music has materially changed because of the retreat that we've seen in, in European gas prices. And of course, we've also seen that Chinese reopening narrative, which is providing a slightly more constructive backdrop for the German export sector. So the combination of the, those two factors does suggest that Europe might, and Germany at the leadership of that, might just avoid that negative GDP print. And that's obviously one of the, one of the catalysts which has really been driving this Euro recovery narrative alongside the presumption that uh, the ECB is seemingly much more hawkish than the Fed. In the it's a relative story, isn't it? It, stagnation versus recession. Now we need to talk about stagnation versus expansion and recovery. It's a big difference Absolutely. between the former and the latter. No, indeed, indeed there is. So in a sense, I think what we had is that obviously going through uh, the third quarter last year, we had an enormous degree of negativity priced in or baked into the sort of the Eurozone recovery narrative because, of course, we were talking about the potential for gas rationing. Now here we are at this stage in the, in the, in the winter period. Now it is remarkably cold here in, in London, as we know at the moment, but the actual winter itself has been relatively mild 
thus far. And if you look at European gas short, uh, storage levels, it's run, they're running around 20% above the sort of levels you would have expected normally at this time of the winter. So that eases the burden in terms of the re refilling of those gas storage tanks through the course of this summer. And of course, we've seen Germany opening its uh, liquefied natural gas uh, uh, ports in terms of uh, Wilhelmshaven, for example. So the ability for Germany to get those LNG capabilities or, or flows from the US in particular has helped to alleviate some of those recession risks. Firing up coal as well over in Germany. Which is an interesting one. So in a sense, that's one of the legacy issues. So that's why it was fascinating to see you know, the Greta Thunberg narrative being sure. put alongside uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. You mentioned the ECB. Here's a question for you. 2023. Does the ECB hike more than the Fed this year? Yes, I think it does. Uh, I think you know, we're, we're very much in this steady and significant policy narrative. The, you know, the, the, you know, to sort of paraphrase Madame Lagarde and throw Mar Margaret Thatcher into it, she, the lady's not for turning in terms of the interest rate story from uh, the narrative that we saw from last week. So it seems likely uh, to, to go along with the, the comments from class not over the weekend that we're going to see at least 250 basis point moves from the, uh, from the ECB the next two meetings. Do they go beyond that in terms of uh, into the spring? Possibly yes. So that, I think, does suggest that uh, the ECB is going to be a little bit more hawkish than the Fed, because if, we're, if the market is right, and obviously uh, markets uh, are tending to be uh, you know, very aggressive in terms of calling for a moderation in terms of policy tightening for the Fed, then that does suggest the ECB is going to be more hawkish. The kid juice of Gen this morning, writing in London, for Gen saying a spoonful of optimism helps the dollar go down. You want to play that against the yen, against the euro? How do you want to play that story? Well, well I, think, I think the yen is, is an obvious and interesting an interesting one because again we've we've seen you know a degree of policy uncertainty uh, really writ large after that uh, adjustment in terms of yield curve control back in December. Now those minutes from that meeting that have been released overnight suggest that a lot of the uh, the uh, BOJ members were worried about the communication aspects of that change. But I think it was it was always going to be the case that you know to expect a degree of policy normalisation from the BOJ this year, but more so after Kuroda leaves uh, office because of course he's only got one more meeting to go. So I think you know I think there is still a, a, some substantial scope for yen appreciation so we you know we'd be looking for you know runs up to maybe 131 132 in the nearer term to provide better levels to start short looking for a return back to 120 the words we use matter you said normalization and japan are the first same sentence so we've had several decades now of zero rates in japan what's normal well for japan? That, that's true i mean i've been in the market for some considerable time and you know japan and japanese monetary policy has been generally the same they've been always attaining for this uh aiming for this two percent inflation target which invariably they've missed other than uh, and sporadic and uh, exceptional circumstances as we're seeing now. Normalisation, though, I think is a process of moving away from that negative interest rate policy. So I think that's going to be the dynamic that we're going to see. So if we start to see Japan moving away from those negative rates, that has enormous implications for fund flows because, of course, Japan being that major exporter of capital, exporter of, uh, of credit in terms of looking for those higher yields, if there is a degree of dislocation in terms of those fund flows and that exiting um, from Japan, then I think that has enormous implications. So as we look for Treasury JGB spreads to continue to compress, that provides that uh, momentum for dollar-yen to move lower. Talk to me about the limits about how far the BOJ can go, how far they can pull back from their yield curve control. I was thinking about the ECB in Europe in the last year, and if you told me they were going to deliver what they have delivered, on top of throwing in QT as well, I would have had real doubts about what could or couldn't happen to the bond market. I would have expected the periphery to face mm. a real, real difficulty. I know spreads are wider, I know yields are out over the last 12 months or so, but not to the extent that I would have said. Have you been surprised by that? What does that inform you about how far the BOJ might go? Well, you're absolutely right, because if you think about what we've seen from the ECB, you would have thought that B2B bond spreads would have been pushing 250 basis points or higher and starting to really create uh, some degree of fragmentation risk. 
So in a sense, I think you know, the, we have seen a degree of relative calm, if you like, in terms of the movements that we've seen in terms of monetary policy. And I think that's going to be interesting in terms of Japan. So can they tolerate uh, you know, long-end yields, you know, 10-year yields moving up beyond 1%? I think they probably can if we get a more uh, normalized uh, yield curve in Japan. So I think you know, the, there is this scope for an adjustment. I'm not suggesting that you know, the BOJ is going to be suddenly adopting a very aggressive pace of uh, balance sheet uh, constriction. I think it's more about removing or easing those considerations in terms of yield curve control, removing that uh, negative rate dynamic, and then encouraging some of those fund flows to remain onshore. I think that's the sort of the dynamic rather than necessarily going for a complete sea change, even with the confines of a new uh, administration. Let's finish on the Fed. The Dove's got the last word. Governor Waller, I wouldn't have called him a dove last year, but certainly endorsing the 25 basis point move this year. Are we done after that? I think we're then getting to a situation where we are literally right at the end game, and I think the data will then determine that. So I think we are still very much mo- focusing on employment and earnings. I think those are the, t- the, you know, the obvious benchmarks. Uh, and then, of course, looking within the CPI print to see how things like those rent dynamics play out. So I think we are very, very close to the end game here. But I think the, the other issue that we would still take, uh, take issue with from the market perspective is that degree of cuts, you know, that rate cutting that's priced into the market. We're very close to the end of the hiking cycle, but we don't necessarily think we should be uh, pricing in cuts for the second half of the final question. Markets have to grapple with ever-changing probabilities and price them accordingly. Who's got more chance here? The Federal Reserve getting to five or Tottenham getting a top four finish this year in the league? Uh, well, considering my son is a massive Arsenal fan, then I really, really cannot, I really cannot answer anything in the affirmative in relation to Tottenham. There we go. Jeremy Stretch of CIVC. Thanks very much. Good to see you, mate. Thanks for having us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.